my gosh. Um, I wanted to just share a scripture with you and then I'll kind of open and introduce myself a bit, if that's all right. I just felt the Lord... Um, this is Philemon or Philemon, depending on what continent you're on. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, um, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. And um, I felt that godly affection towards you guys that I hear of your faith and your love in the Lord and how you've refreshed the saints and it's refreshed my heart just to be here. And I know some of you and the people that I, that I know, I've only known for short windows and yet the level of affection and connection that I have is um, radically disproportionate because of the spirit that you carry and the openness of heart. And I felt <laughs> that you have refreshed my heart and you refresh the hearts of the saints and everyone that comes through this place gets refreshed. So thank you for your love and devotion to the Lord. And that goes to you who are here, to what you do in the Lord. Hey, Jay. <laughs> the things that are seen and the things that are unseen. <laughs> it refreshes my heart and it refreshes the Lord's heart. This is awesome. Um... It seems almost redundant to me to talk about righteousness in this house because I know you had Mark and others up here for great periods of time. But I felt the Lord impress on my heart to remind you of the importance of the message that you carry and not to become... Don't forsake the message or become um, familiar with it because the body of Christ actually needs it desperately. Um, I intentionally expose myself to um, different facets of the body of Christ in Australia um, with an absolute agenda, uh, not a personal agenda, but one I feel from heaven because I don't think it's healthy to go into a church with a personal agenda. Um, you will shipwreck that, shipwreck that agenda quickly um, and find out that the Lord has another one for you. But I do believe heaven has an agenda and that is to reinfuse the body of Christ with the Holy Spirit and the reality that the gospel sets free from sin, the power of Jesus to change a life. And this house, it carries it significantly. Since I got off the plane in Darwin on Saturday afternoon-ish, <laughs> depending on what you count as getting off the plane, because my luggage was on the plane for an extra hour while the storm abated. I think I was the last plane in. Like, I think they stopped the flights. <laughs> I, I say I think because Isaac and I got into a conversation and we couldn't even, we weren't even listening to the announcements anymore. Is this boomy? Do you want me to back off a bit? You guys good? You guys can hear me? Awesome. And um, I, could, I keep seeing pictures of 
small aircraft, little fighter planes, and then little MAF missionary aviation fellowship planes coming and going from this place. And to me, that speaks of um, what I call an apostolic sending center. And that means it's a place that's not necessarily existing just solely to build um, a local community, even though that is the mandate of every church, but also is called to be a place where people come in, be equipped and get sent out again. Or where community members come in, find healthy identity in Christ and then find their calling and go off and fulfill it. And it seems to be that this house and this city are a hub and a heartland and a spiritual anchor of Australia, um, which I didn't know until I got here. I've never been here before. Um, there's something significant on this house. So I felt the Lord, I'm going to speak a, a little bit, I think, I'm going to speak a little bit of righteousness. I say I think because I prepared myself, but I felt the Holy Spirit never, ever give me, like, permission to just run with it yet. So I'm going to listen to him as I go. Thank you, Jesus. Well, he gave me two scriptures from the book of Revelation. And um, if I speak to a house um, apostolically, it is always submitted to the senior leader of the house. So whatever I say, it actually has to pass through Naomi and what she feels for this house. So when I speak this, know that it's subject to uh, what's in Naomi's heart. So if it falls flat, if it's not what's in Naomi's heart, then it's not what God has for the house. Does that make sense? So if I release it, it's, if it's not under what Naomi's felt from the Lord for the vision of the house, then, I, then forget it. You with me? But I felt this. This is um, Revelation 3 verse 2. It says this, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. And I feel like there is a, um, almost a shout from the Lord of encouragement, saying, like for this house, strengthen what remains because there's a call here that I haven't finished with yet. Don't be discouraged, but actually there's that wake up, I've got something amazing planned for your house. Strengthen those things that remain. And um, Sharon and Wayne, I was looking at you guys, or specifically I was looking at you, Sharon, when I was in the prayer meeting, and I saw a picture of, um, you know, you get those Ikea tables, and they're only little, little tiny tables, right? And um, the legs can be a bit flimsy. You, know, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? especially any students here that are buying furniture on a budget. And, um, but then I saw that um, one of the legs was missing, and then God took this piece of, this concrete pillar that was like this wide and like flat across the top and shoved it underneath the table as a foundation. And I feel like you guys are a, a pillar that's so strong it's actually disproportionate to what you hold up. And there's no way that table's ever falling over. It can't even move because God has put you as a pillar in the house of God. To strengthen those things that remain because God has a plan for this house. He's not finished. Far from it. 
The other scripture I heard from Revelation was um, 3 verse 8 and 9. It's this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those who are of the synagogue of Satan to say, who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come down and bow at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. And um, that second verse, that's the message of righteousness. But the first verse, verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I feel like that there's, again, a strong mandate from the Lord for this house. That, he, that you have stood firm in the truth and stood firm in the love of, the whole, of God in the Holy Spirit. And God has put an opportunity to influence this region. And the sphere of influence that God has given you, which is far beyond this region, and it's, not a, it's a door that no one can shut. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I know there's strong words, but sometimes when you're in a, in a race, like in a, in a, in a, in a, a challenge, like, you know, um, you're running like the Tough Mudder or a, tr- a Spartan race or something, and, you've, and you're hitting the hardest parts, you don't need a manby-pamby word of encouragement. You actually need someone who's strong to come up and say, get up, you can keep going. Get up, there's a call in your life. Get up, you've already won. Keep going. And I feel the Lord so strong and so passionate about what he's doing through this house. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to change tack now. Um, I feel like God wanted to just drop this one other scripture in and then I'm going to talk about righteousness for a second. But it's 1 Peter Chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. And I just felt this for you guys as a family. The way that you strengthen what remains is this. It says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins and be hospitable to one another without complaint. And I feel like that love that you guys carry, as you lean into it, it's going to strengthen those things that remain and actually produce Uh, fruit for the next season and I felt that there was such a love here and I feel the Lord calling you to lean into one another and to um, to keep fervent in your love for one another uh, and to be hospitable to one another and to actually press into that place more and more uh, to love one another passionately to be intentional and um, use initiative in finding ways to love and press into one another and I feel like you will see numerical growth as you do that, it will just happen. Thank you, Lord. And I feel the Lord's pleasure over the love you have for one another in this house. And I know this word extends to many of the people that aren't here today. So prophetically, they were the words I had from the Lord. They were the scriptures that he gave me for this house. I had a vision about, see if I can sit on this thing like this, 
Praise the Lord. You're fitting and dying really well, don't I? <laughs> Praise God. What are you guys laughing at? What's your name with the beautiful ears? Is it Michelle? Emily. Emily, um, Kat actually said, are you going to prophesy when I was thinking about your earrings? And I felt an invitation from the Holy Spirit. Like, if you want to, I can give you a word for, for Emily. And um, so I began to pray uh, and listen to the Holy Spirit ever since that conversation. Thank you, Lord. And I saw uh, a prayer warrior that you are and the hunger that you have for the Holy Spirit, the hunger you have for more of him. Uh, and I feel our Lord promising, um, saying, yes, I will fulfill. And I see, um, I actually saw you making earrings, but I don't know what that means. Is that something that you do? No. You've got stuff to make earrings. Wow. And I saw a desire for, um, for, for entrepreneurial, for, for business. And I felt the Lord's grace on it. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, I also feel the prophetic gift on your life is profound. And I feel the Lord um, saying, upgrade the pump. And what I meant was, what, it, what I thought he means by that is you've got this beautiful well that you've dug and there's this eternal spring of water at the bottom of it and you have learned to hone the gift of at one level where you'll pull the buckets up for what have you got to say Lord but I feel the Lord saying I want you to upgrade the pump so that more water can be pumped out of it and uh, I just feel that as it's lean into that prophetic space you've got great prophetic um, safety here you've got people like Naomi and others here that and the Wilkes that can help you um, steward that gift in a healthy way and grow on it it's going to be profound for other people, but it will change you. Because you can't hear the heartbeat of the Father for other people without being changed by it for yourself. And I feel like he'll give you dangerous words. And what I mean by that, not dangerous, is in their risque, in, their, in what the content is. But they'll actually be dangerous to the enemy's hold on people who are in dire situations. I see you prophesying to people who are coming out of, or even still in, the makings of radical testimonies and uh, coming out of prison, coming out of situations and being able to prophesy into them and watching the chains of their past fall off as you speak to their destiny. And it will take a sense of risk because you're like, man, am I really going to prophesy over this person? And where they're at and then being able to speak and it will, it will shift something. Thank you, Jesus. Where is, is it Georgie? There she is. Georgie, there's something special and dynamic about you, hey. And I saw you, um, it's funny, I didn't know you were going to be over there, but I saw you came in with children and you were kicking an AFL ball around. And uh, I just felt that you've got this um, grace to encourage people in a way that's really receivable, especially to the world. And um, they, don't under, they don't know that underneath is the Holy Spirit. But you've got this grace to reach into that sphere. And just be a real encouragement and that you're fun to be around. But you're actually um, powerful in the Holy Spirit. And um, it's going to, I saw like it's going to be like this fly kick to the enemy at times where I just won't see it coming. And uh, and even, you know, um, conversations that are joking around at like barbecues and things like that. But you're going to see people come to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And I feel like he's got his hand on the career thing. Not sure what that means, but he's got his hand on it. And um, whatever the ambiguity is, God has a very definite plan for you. And it's shaped and molded to who you are. (laughs) And I just ask God that you would shift her finances right now in the name of Jesus. 
Let there be significant shift right now. Turn, turn, turn in Jesus' name. I had a vision uh, about three years ago. I hadn't actually got the revelation of righteousness. Um, I'm very bold in the way that I speak about um, freedom from sin. Um, So I've been in ministry for almost 20 years, and for about 13 of those years, um, struggled with lust, and I at times would struggle with pornography. I just couldn't get free. And so... um, that stop when I got the revelation of righteousness, and I got it in a moment, just happened. Nathaniel Oliveri, which many of you in this house know, came to my church in America, spoke on that sin is external, and I, it, the penny just dropped, and I just stopped sinning. And so for about two and a half years, I didn't have a single lustful thought, not once, absolutely immune to it. And uh, obviously, the pornography thing just broke instantly. So I, I was totally free, am totally free, because freedom from sin is real. And I had people I was discipling in my, um, in my church, like my leaders, my guys, and I have these round, almost like these cycles, right, where they oh, stuffed up, so then there'd be confession, there'd be prayer, you'd see their freedom would come. And then, but then, you know, back into it in two months or three months, and um, really, like, lived totally transparently, but just couldn't seem to get free. Pushed my revelation of grace to its limit. So I love the Lord. I left no space, no time between confession. I, I did everything I could. I had, I had um, what do you call it, accountability. I had all these things. And I, and I knew there was no condemnation for those in Christ. So I pushed that to its limit. And people would say to me, oh, we love him because he first loved us. But I love the Lord and I couldn't get free from sin. I was living absolutely sold out, couldn't get free. And I'm like, I, I remember sitting with the Lord after a 45-minute conversation with one of my guys on the phone, 10 o'clock at night, sitting in the car on this conversation. I get off the phone. I said to, said to the Lord, this is not enough. Like, this is not good enough. Go back six months earlier, and I see this vision of a, Van Gogh, of a Monet painting. So Monet does the little tiny brush strokes that all go together to make this beautiful picture, right? And it's this garden scene and you're looking through it and it's kind of encased in trees and then there's this cobblestone clearing in the middle with a beautiful old wooden house white wooden house at the background and in this clearing is this little table and chairs and in front of the table and chairs is a blue umbrella which seems like the most random thing and so i'm looking at this and i see this blue umbrella and the umbrella is actually out of focus so you guys with me so you got this beautiful painting i can see it it's both real and a painting at the same time, which only you can do in a vision. But there's this blue umbrella and it's out of focus. And then suddenly this box, this red line box with a crosshair through it comes up in my vision like I'm looking through the viewfinder on a, on a DSLR, like on a, through a camera. You guys with me? So suddenly I'm looking at the same picture through a camera and this box, it centers down on the blue umbrella and then begins to auto-focus in and out on this umbrella. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, righteousness is coming into focus. And then as I came out of the vision, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, righteousness is the new weapon. And when he said the word new, I knew that he meant new for this season, but not new. It was ancient. It's the same weapon that God has always had. But it was new, a new weapon. And I didn't understand exactly. And I didn't have a revelation of righteousness yet. So six months later, I'm in the car. I get off the phone with this guy. And I said to the Lord, this is not good enough. And I saw a vision 
of a giant walking through the heavenlies. This giant was huge, like not Goliath, like 10, 12 feet tall or whatever. It was hundreds of feet tall. This huge giant, so tall that when I looked at it, I couldn't see past its knees because it was like a skyscraper. And it was striding. You know when somebody walks with purpose, it's like, like this, like they just walk. And, and nothing, you don't want anything in their path because they're going to kick the chair out of the way. This giant's huge, right? And as it's striding through heaven, there's this little tiny rock on the ground. And as it walks, it clips the rock for a second and then just corrects its footing and just keeps going. And I see this vision and I hear the Holy Spirit say this to me. What if for the believer, sin is just the momentary, uncharacteristic little of a rock of a saint striding through the heavenlies rather than the inevitable failure of a sinful man or woman trying to get out of his sinfulness and the little of the rock you know sometimes you hear something from the Lord you have to put words to it yourself he wouldn't even give me the word stumble I'm not, so we're not talking about somebody's stomach. It was like a little... And he just corrected his footing and kept going. And it started to change something for me on the spot. This is a few days before I got the revelation of righteousness. And then I pressed the Lord. I said, I need to understand this better. I, I get what you're saying on this end of the spectrum, but show me more so I understand. And the vision began to pan out and it split in two. You know how you play a video game and the screen splits in two, like the top and then the bottom? two race cars or whatever. So on the top of the screen, the top half of the TV screen, is this vision of this giant striding through the heaven. Everything's white, everything's pure, everything's purpose and identity and peace. And then the bottom half of the screen, suddenly it turns into this like red earth, like this, you know, it says in um, Genesis, in the beginning the earth was formless and void and and, um, it was like this volcanic wasteland. And this whole horizon was like this ashen red color and in that horrible volcanic light and glow. And I zoomed in on that. And so I'm in this world and I'm looking at this man and there's like this crater hole in the ground and it's full of this black tar and there's a man standing in the middle of it and the tar is alive. This tar's alive and there's these straps of living tar that would come up out of the pool of tar and wrap themselves around this man. And so when I looked at him, he already had three straps of tar around him and he's like this and he's trying to stand up and reach towards the heavens. And his mouth is like this, like, ah, and he's screaming, trying to get up. And he'd pull a strap off and then another one would flick up out of the, out of the, the tar and wrap around him again and pull him back down. And the Holy Spirit said to me, that's how you see yourself. And it's not true. And I began to open up this realization that I didn't understand the gospel. I'd been a minister for, at the time, 17 years. Didn't understand the fullness of the gospel. I never understood the resurrection. Never got it. Like, I, I, I got it, like, in the sense that, oh, yeah, Jesus defeated death. He's alive. Yay. But I never got it. I thought that Jesus just died for my sins. So he took the punishment. If in that, through that lens, you know the whole book of Hebrews makes no sense for any of the real 
people like to think about their New Testament theology, the whole book of Hebrews makes no sense. Because Jesus didn't just take the punishment for my sins. His death actually inaugurated a new covenant. It's not a punishment theology. where's Where's the proportion of punishment? No, he's a sacrifice for sin. And that sacrifice is different from the Old Testament sacrifices. Because those sacrifices were under a different covenant. They were under an old covenant. And those sacrifices can never take away sin. They never take away sin. So it's like this cycle, right? You just, there's, you're a sinful person and then you're going along and then boom, you sin. And then there's guilt and then there's you know, remorse. So there's repentance. Then there's a sense of restoration, right? Because there's a sacrifice, a sacrifice, a bull or a goat. And you go back on your way again. But you're still a sinner. You, your condition hasn't changed because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. That's a different covenant. But the new covenant, Jesus, his blood paid for a new covenant, which is actually written about in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah and quoted in the book of Hebrews. It says, I will make a new covenant with them, not like the old covenant. And in that covenant, their lawless deeds I will remember no more, and my laws I will write them on their heart and mind. In other words, and he says, and then he goes on to say, by one sacrifice you have been sanctified forever. Or and later on he says again, by one sacrifice for sins he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Unfortunately, the ESV says being sanctified, but that's not what the Greek word means. It's a participle. In other words, you're participating in the reality of the sanctification of Christ. You're not in progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is not biblical. I used to be afraid to say that. I was like, oh, but then the more I read the New Testament, the more I realized progressive sanctification is unbiblical. Let me show you a reason. Uh, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, yeah? So if I am becoming more like Christ, yeah? Who's becoming more like Christ? Who's becoming more like Christ? If I died with Christ, and it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, who's becoming more like Christ? Is it Jesus? Because he can't become more holy. That's blasphemy. You with me? But that's actually, that's actually heresy. That's bad. That's terrible theology. Is it me becoming more like Christ? Because I died. So what's the point in that? He replaced me with holiness. Once, by one sacrifice. Either his sacrifice is the same as bulls and goats, either Jesus is a better Old Old Testament sacrifice, or, and I just keep sinning and going around the circle, and I go, oh, thank you, Jesus, for your blood. I'm such a sinner, but thank you for your forgiveness which is how I behave for 13 years. Or, thank you, Jesus, that you have set me free from sin forever. And repentance comes out of a godly sorrow based on relationship, recognizing that's no longer who you are. Now, you guys have heard this all before. Genesis 6.6, one of the most confronting statements I've ever heard God make, more confronting in a good way in the New Testament, uh, sorry, in the new, to do with the New Covenant, like through a New Covenant lens. It says this. This is just before the flood of Noah. Oh, Naomi, how are we going for time? I'll make sure. 
So good? Um, Genesis 6, 6 says this. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and his heart, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So, why was he grieved? Why was he grieved in this situation? What, what was God looking at? What was he looking at? The sinful situation, right? The sinfulness of humanity. And he's totally grieved in his heart. So let me ask you a question. And I'm not really arming you guys with weaponry here because you already believe this stuff. Why, if, if God was grieved, that grieved, at the condition of sinful humanity, what on earth would make us think that the plan of redemption would leave us in that state? That's ridiculous. He was grieved to the point that humanity that he loved and feels compassion for and created for relationship, he's at the point where he's ready to destroy it. He's that grieved over the condition. Why would it, what makes us think for a second his plan of redemption will leave us in that state? It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's not, it's not plan A. That's not, that's not what God's about. He's redeeming us from. Yeah. He sees, sees Jesus, yeah. Not just because God's pulled the Jesus wool over his eyes. He's actually changed your condition. He's restored us to compatibility. It became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's right. Another good verse that I um, love is Romans 6.6. 6. So Genesis 6.6. 6. God was grieved over the condition of humanity. Romans 6, 6 says this, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might become powerless so we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Through one man, says Romans 5, sin entered the world, through one man, Adam, and through sin, death. And now death reigned over humanity. It actually says that death reigned over humanity from Adam to Moses. You guys with me? Is everyone doing okay? Okay, so it says that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin after the likeness of Adam. I remember reading that and thinking, how does that work, God? How is that fair? Because there was no law yet. It's a mystery, right? The greatest... Oftentimes, for me personally, the greatest mysteries in the scriptures have become places of the greatest revelation of the, of the gospel. This is why death reigned from Adam to Moses. Because you don't actually need necessarily to hear the law for sin to kill you. It was in humanity as a noun, an entity, killing humanity from Adam until Moses why is that significant? Because the law came with Moses. So it's not the law that brings death. It was actually sin. There was a disease in humanity causing us all to actions and deeds that, lead, that produce death. 
So death reigned over humanity and still reigns over those that don't know Jesus Christ. Because death, it says in Corinthians that the sting of sin is death and the strength of sin is the law, or the, the authority, the permission of sin is the law. I never understood that. Like, how is the sting of death sin? What does that mean? Like, I used to think, and forgive the language, I, I used to think this like, um, are you saying, God, that what sucks about death is sin? Like, the bad thing about death is sin. That doesn't make any sense to me, God. I didn't understand. So I asked him this question. I said, explain it to me, God. Like, what are you talking about? And he said, go and sit on your deck and watch the wasps. Because I had this house in America, and we had this tree that would bloom profusely. And all the wasps and and stuff, there's heaps of them in America, these um, yellow jackets and stuff would come out. Um, And I sat on the edge of my deck and watched them for a while. It took me a solid 15 or 20 minutes to get all the theological junk out of my head and just watch them. And I'm watching them. And then all of a sudden it just dawned on me. Do you know how, how does a wasp get you? It's sting, right? How does death get you? Through sin. That's how death gets humanity, through sin. The power of death to kill humanity is in sin. God has removed sin from you, so death no longer has power to kill you. It no longer has authority over your life. It doesn't reign over you. So when this mortal body passes away, you're not subject to the power of death and destruction. You've actually escaped it because sin has been removed from you. The sting of death has been removed from you. Its power and authority over you has been removed because sin no longer has dominion in your life. That's awesome. Jesus, it says in Romans 6, Jesus died to sin once for all, but now lives unto God. In the same way, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's never again to die, and neither are you. Not in the spiritual sense, are you? You with me? You've got eternal life living inside of you because you're actually set free from sin. You're set free. It's awesome, hey? Through one man, sin entered and death through one man, Adam. But through the last Adam, Jesus, he made many righteous. Therefore, we will reign in life by the one Jesus Christ. Death no longer has power over you because sin has been removed. The sting, its ability to kill you is gone. Its ability to harm you is gone. Does that make sense? Love it. Thank you, Jesus. Do you know it's not a new it's not a new revelation? Paul preached it. The apostles preached it. It says in um in John in 1 John 1 it says this is the message that we've uh that we've heard from the beginning that God is light and in him there is no darkness. Yeah? And then he goes on in chapter 3 and says, Behold how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us. And then it goes on to say that the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious, because the children of God don't live in sin. Let no one, he says, let no one deceive you. He who is righteous does righteousness. That scripture used to scare me, because I thought it was a benchmark I had to live up to. But now I know that's my identity. I have, if I'm walking in truth, I've been set free from sin. 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Yeah? You're actually set free. You're set free. Unto a pure love for the brethren. Which is awesome. Uh, Peter says, you have been redeemed from your old way of life, not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus. You've actually been redeemed from your old way of life. Another word for redeemed is ransomed. So imagine you were a slave to sin. Imagine you were literally in chains and sin walked you around and made you do whatever it wanted to do. And what you got at the end of the day was death. Yeah? Which is actually not an uncommon situation for people in history. People have been enslaved, worked to death, and then they die. Right? And then Jesus comes along and says, I will purchase you out of this situation with my blood so that no one can ever put you back in it again. And the chains of sin come off and you get to walk with him as a slave to righteousness. You can't help it. You just produce holiness. It's awesome. So that's going to the word and to the first century. Do you know Corrie ten Boom, who wrote The Hiding Place? So she died in 1983. Got out of... Uh, um, concentration camp somewhere around 45, 46 and she spent the rest of her life travelling preaching the gospel everywhere everywhere you can think of every possible imaginable context she went to and she was already old by that time she was a machine she says this thing called the ding dong principle she actually preached righteousness if you, don't, if you want to see for yourself read the hiding place um, she calls it the ding-dong principle. So in Holland, they've got these belfries where you pull the bell and the bells ring, you know, pull the, pull the ropes, excuse me. And the ding-dong principle is this. If, when you stop pulling the, the rope, you know that the bell will keep ringing a few times after you finish pulling the rope, right? But you've taken your hands off the rope. And she says, the Bible says that sin no longer has dominion over your life. So when you get saved... The devil is no longer pulling the ropes in your life, but you might still hear the sound of temptation for a while, but you're actually no longer a slave to sin. That old person died. That's her words, right? From like the 1950s, 1960s. John Wesley, third, third, um, re, third uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not rece- reception. A third impartation of grace a third anyway so so third experience of grace so he's got experience number one is salvation right experience number two is the baptism of the holy spirit experience number three is what he called total sanctification now some people and myself included for years looked at that and go that's ridiculous that's hardcore hardcore theology why because I was thinking of it in terms of progressive sanctification, like I have to attain to this somehow. So it sounds contrary to grace. Except when I got the revelation of righteousness, God showed me the gospel's always worked. They just tapped into something. They're trying to put language to it. They got free from sin. They were born again, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they experienced the reality that you live free from sin when you walk in intimacy with Jesus. Because the old man's dead. It's not a third experience of grace. It's actually the gospel. But people have poo-pooed it or, or criticized it or theologically critiqued it 
cares about like intellectualizing theology it drives me nuts i am super analytical but you don't get revelation from your brain it comes by the holy spirit through the word you with me david said in psalm 119 your through your word you have made me wiser than all my counselors you have made me smarter than the aged I don't think he had pride. That's the word of God, right? He's saying there's revelation. I'll close with this. Righteousness is the new weapon. We're coming into an age where, or just a time rather, just a short period of time, where healthy parts of the church have come to the end of the pier of grace, like they just don't know where to go. They're like, I, they're like getting to the like, yes, I believe there's no condemnation for those in Christ, and they get to here and they're like, what do I do now? Like, like I don't know where to go. I, I talk to people. I know there are other people way more abreast of what's happening in the body of Christ globally than I am. Mark Greenwood would definitely be one of those people, and there are spheres he enters into that I have no interest in, in entering into. But I know the healthy spheres that I carry, that God has mandated me. And these are healthy places. They want the Holy Spirit. They're looking for purity. But they're coming and they're like, there's no condemnation. God loves me no matter what I've done, what I'm doing. And they get to the end of the period and they're like, so what now? Do I have permission to sin? Are you with me? It's confusing, hey. I know that God loves me no matter what I do or what I've done. I know I'm born again. I know there's no condemnation for those in Christ. But now I've come to the end of the period of my theology and I don't know where to go. So what do I do? Do I, do I begin to give permission to sin? Right? Is same-sex marriage okay? No. But they're, they're lost. They're, they're not lost. They're just, they've just come to the end of their understanding. They don't know where to go. And, I, and, and, and I, They need the message of righteousness. Because at the very least, they run the risk of going back to the start again and going, oh, now I've sinned again. Now I've got to convince myself again there's no condemnation for those in Christ. So they walk along again. They go through the scriptures over and over again. They read Romans 8.1 over and over again like I did for years, not understanding Romans 8.2, that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You are not the Romans 7 man. That's an example of somebody in the flesh living under the law, a slave to sin. There's never once in Romans 7 is in that in that dialogue about the thing I do I don't want to do and I don't do the thing I want to do never once in that particular portion is the Holy Spirit ever mentioned in contrast with the flesh like never there's no competition it's not the the spiritual man pulling against the flesh man no it's Paul's mind against the flesh man the law of my mind waging war against the the law of sin in my members like I want to go this way but there's something pulling me this way and I can't fight it wretched man I am who will set me free thanks be to God in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from all that so I can walk in holiness apart from self-effort because that person is dead that's the message of Romans 7 it's not actually contrary to righteousness it is the message of righteousness you have been set free from that dynamic because there's no way you can live holy in your own effort because you were bound to sin in the flesh Romans 6 told you that person died. Paul's just explaining the dynamic. But the church desperately needs what you carry. Don't get familiar with it. 
you need to share it. I start conversations all the time with people. I get into conversations at, at like weddings and whatever with people in the body of Christ, and they're healthy people, right? but they don't understand righteousness, and they need it because they've come to the end of the pier. They don't, they, they don't know where to take grace from there. And they need to hear it because the beginning, some of them are beginning to celebrate brokenness, and it's not okay. They'll end up in brokenness with a powerless gospel. And every generation, when there's revival, there's a return to this, the Word of God. I believe it like Billy Graham believed it. He had friends that went off to different seminaries and they started having funky ideas about whether it's the Word of God and critiquing scriptural, textual, etc. Now, I say those things mockingly. I'm quite aware of many of those arguments. I've gone, done Bible colleges and blah, blah, you know, stuff like that. But I would, within reason, I'd be happy to throw all of that junk out the window and just believe this by faith. So Billy Graham goes out to the woods, puts the Bible down on a tree stump and prays all night, and at some stage during the night, it just hit him. I am convinced this is the word of God, and I believe it by faith. Every person I've met who's gone off a funky edge of that cliff and not actually no longer believe this is the word of God has always gone down. Everyone I've met always gone down the garden path and either shipwrecked their faith or come to a crisis of such magnitude they've had to come back to believing this is the word of God. It is the word of God. It's powerful. There are 700 former ice addicts in Vietnam right now who are living absolutely free because they read the Bible every day and pray. There's no discipleship program that they're a part of. They just read the Bible and pray, and they're born again and free and living in the Holy Spirit and praising God. This is the word of God. This gets restored every time there's, there's revival. It's on this, the word of God, and the power of the gospel to change a life through the regeneration that comes by the Holy Spirit and you're living in those times right now and you carry it, this house carries it. You are the oil that will overflow into the surrounding region and the people around it. We will see, I'm just making sure I vet my words carefully on this, we will see denominations refired and revitalized with the real revelation that Jesus sets free from sin sets free from alcoholism, sex, sets free from sexual perversion, sets free from depression, sets free from habitual sin, sets free from confusion. It sets free because that's what Jesus came to do, seek and to save that which was lost. This house carries it. You have these precious gems. And I encourage you, implore you even, to covet them and use them with the mandate on this house. And people will come. There's going to be people flying into the city who will come to this church just because they're drawn by the Holy Spirit to receive that message. We're going to see a global awakening. And just like the message of grace is household theology, even the world knows it and abuse it. Righteousness will become a household doctrine. And I think possibly for the first time in history, we have the articulated theology and the understanding of the scriptures to sustain it and not have it get lost again in, in pigeonholed theology or in movements, but actually that this is the gospel and maintain it. It's necessary for a sustained revival. Amen? Thank you guys for listening to me for so very long. Love you all sincerely. And I pray that you all would passionately serve 
Naomi and the team. Get behind them. God has his hand on this house. There's something swirling in the spirit here in Darwin. It's, it's ridiculous, like, the magnitude of it. I didn't know what I was walking into. I just didn't know. I was very ignorant, so please forgive me. I didn't love you any less. I just didn't know. And I, I, I had to ask Isaac to, to like, let me go early because I needed to pray. I was, he was driving me around Palmerston and I was almost ready to weep. And I pulled over. I just took the car, drove into a spot, pulled over somewhere and I just prayed and prayed in tongues and interceded and I cried out for this city and, and Palmerston and, uh, and Darwin and just, just cried at something here. There's a great heritage here. Um, there's years of missionary work and years of, of um, people going into Papua New Guinea and Southeast Asia from this place and um, just years of prayer. I saw the Cole Stringer book you've got in the prayer room. There's something significant about the heart of Australia in this, in this state. Uh, you guys are like standing on, on spiritually like an active volcano, like God is going to erupt here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Naomi.